0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host Eric Ostrich, and we are here for season four. And season four's theme is system and application architecture. Today, we're joined by a special guest, Mode Makbul Alam Makbul. How are you?
1: I'm great at the same time really feeling terrible because of whole coronavirus thing but overall trying to use this time to be more productive learn new stuff mostly related to history and all and linguistics which i'm really interested in
0: I would love to hear a little bit more about that. We're now devoting a little bit more of the show, just learning about people personally. And so I'd love to hear about where are you calling us from? How did you discover Elixir? We are recording this in the middle of coronavirus pandemic 2020. So would love to hear how you're faring in Delhi because that's, that's where you're calling us from. Mostly just tell us about how you're doing during this crisis. I'm curious, is Delhi shut down? How are you coping? Tell us about this uh, history that you're studying.
1: Delhi is shut down, not complete lockdown, but people aren't allowed to go outside after the 6 p.m. But mostly I just don't go out pretty much. So it doesn't really matter for me that much. So most of my time involved reading about history books and learning about new languages. I'm picking up a couple of new languages. I'm putting more stuff on those along the line, not not too much programming, but more like other humanity stuff.
0: So we discovered you through the folks over at Groxio. They recommended that you would be a great interview. I've seen that you have participated in a number of Elixir conferences. How did you come to the Elixir community?
1: This has happened by chance. So I was in my second year or sixth, fifth semester, I believe. So I had some experience with object-oriented languages. I'm talking about in 2017 or so. I had to take this class, a something... So we have to take this class independently to get some grades. So I was looking to learn something different. So everyone was talking at that time about functional language, functional languages. Someone's talking about Haskell and all. So I don't know, some Google search, I came to a MOOC service, future on where there was a late, the grade Joe Armstrong course on Erlang. So I just pick it up and got to know it. At the beginning, the syntax really looked different because I was not really, into prologue and logic programming but now i'm really liking the erlang style syntax as well but then later on i figured out there is some other community building right with the beam community so elixir so i joined the elixir forum and start looking for resources and start learning and start taking part in the community itself and finally come to the point that i have to learn this thing and i'm not really that experienced so i start talking about people in Delhi to really share the information. Hey, I'm starting this community and people have start joining in. And then finally we have a good enough number. There are folks in Pune. So Pune is in Maharashtra somewhere. So they have really good community, really big community. So I got contacted with them. Then finally we have like something is happening in Delhi and Pune in Elixir community as a whole.
0: Is there an Elixir con in India?
1: Yeah, there was a Alexa last year, so where I gave my first full talk. It was a Elixir Beam Light Bangalore.
0: Bangalore, of course. Which is
1: part of a big uh, yeah. Bangalore is like our Silicon Valley. A lot of tech people work up there. So there I met like Roxo founder Bruce. So I knew Bruce and I, I was acquainted with Bruce works, like seven languages in seven weeks. So I knew him from online. So we had like chatted didn't meet like personally but we talked about it and then finally i saw that he submitted a talk to a this particular conference like functional programming india which includes the code beam light india so i thought maybe i had work on this a database driver for a mysql database so I thought I might share something where I learned: pattern matching and how my secret binary protocols and work. So finally, the proposal got accepted, and then I gave this talk. And I gave a tour to Bruce all of the Bangalore.
2: What made you excited to learn to program and become a programmer?
1: This is a really good question because you know, after ninth grade, I joined this government school. So we had like really worst condition you can think of for learning computer science. So. We have not good condition in here and especially for government school at the time i was studying but someone showed me a way to install this mac os onto your thing on your operating system on your machine which are not apple fix or hagnetosh and all by doing that i learned about bash and also i thought like this are something interesting i'm interested in it. and i start taking seriously then i took a class in 11th grade about computer science, where I learned C++ and algorithms and data structure, basic stuff, and I liked it. So I thought like maybe I should major in this particular field because I can think about doing this for a very long time.
0: When you were getting started learning Elixir, do you have a favorite resource or something that helped you learn or someone that helped you learn?
1: Elixir Forum is number one resource, of course, there is this Sasha. He's a really big guy in our community. Sasha, he's election and action guy.
0: Sasha, Urich. Yeah. He was just on the show.
1: Yeah. So he's like super smart. He gifted me his election and action book. So the first chapter, the whole discussion, how each of this functionality could be replaced with the airline. So that was really tipping point. This is something just kicks in. And another part was supervision tree. Anyone who never thought about this way of thinking about individual components of your application will find it very interesting given that i was not very experienced with a distributed system at that time it's just blown my mind away
0: that's a great segue into sort of talking about architecture because I'm, i'm curious you're learning from sasha you're giving talks how has elixir changed the way you think about architecting applications
1: Previously, most of my code was to be mostly comparative programming or maybe sequential code. But after getting into Elixir and Beam, start to thinking more in a distributed fashion. So this was not something it was in my toolbox. So anyone who comes to Beam, he's going to start loving distributed system instantly because it's something part of it. It's a part of bundle. Right. You have to love it.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about that? What were some of the big, like, aha moments for you when you were learning distributed programming?
1: So biggest aha will be the first example I did where I just launched two terminal sessions where I wrote some code and it was able to join them together as thinking as even though it was on a single machine, but that was really different aha experience because I'm writing something on this machine and able to access and it's ha- it could be possible that these machines could be very far apart. It doesn't really matter, but mechanics or semantics would be the same. So that was the very aha moment, the supervision tree, the which I talked about, which is great. But later on, I started loving pattern matching, which is like greatest piece of feature every language should have.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a little bit surprised that you're excited about pattern matching sort of after getting comfortable with the distributed aspects of the language.
1: Because when I start learning about database drivers, so there is a Google Summer of Code. I don't know if you know about this, there is a program by Google where they pay a student to write code. So I wanted to part of this. So there was this movement going on at that time in the Alexa community, the need for a new database driver. So I thought I might write this. So I work really hard, but I wrote proposal, which got rejected. But along the way, I learned these couple of things. I did contribute a little bit to the main project as well, like DB connection, the uh, library which we have, which used to like build these things. That whole thing got me excited about like pattern matching, because pattern matching really gives you ability to write simple enough parsers and all, and also dig into binary very elegant way.
2: Pattern matching was also one of my early favorite features and it still continues.
1: (laughs) I don't know any Elixir developer here in Delhi as well. Everyone wants to talk about pattern matching.
2: Okay, so one of the things that came out, I think only as of recording, only two hours ago, (laughs) one of the things you mentioned during the pre-recording section, you wanted to talk about this Phoenix Live dashboard. So what is it and why are you excited about it?
1: So let me just look at the tweets and then I'll just maybe look it up because I didn't look into details. So it was kind of a tool which allow you to have, it's a kind of a dashboard kind of thing which gives you more information Though we have like observer kind of thing in airline built into our beam. So I think it's along that similar line, but much more user friendly and have give much more information so here's the, some things so is give information the phoenix live dashboard which give you what is the version related to elixir you have like what is the phoenix the dashboard itself what is the uptime so they're giving a lot whole more information about your application itself without like any third party right built into your phoenix app what are the binaries you have are using or how many atoms are what how many size the your ets table is taking on the processes so a bunch of numer- uh, metrics are available to you right into the dashboard itself that is really interesting and and also give you the chart information so like microseconds, millisecond this information these metrics also available so there are a couple of things i think people should check it out it seems interesting right now i think it's in beta or off, i don't know just released two hours ago
0: have you gotten to play much with live view
1: so I attended Bruce talk. So apart from that, I don't have much experience with the live view. I'm pretty excited about this dashboard
0: thing too. I think that having code that people can build on top of, that really demonstrates the capability of live view is gonna be, I don't know if it's a game changer, if that's the right word, but it does feel like a pretty big step for the community to take. So I think I'm also excited. Eric, do you have a take on that at all?
2: I think it's super cool. And I believe this is the thing. I think I saw someone say this ElixirConf 2017 or 18, Chris McCord's keynote was showing off like a metrics page. So I think this is finally that (laughs) it's cool to see it come out. And the two things that I am most interested in is you can look at the Phoenix logs for like a specific request chain through this thing. And then it also works through distributed Erlang. So as long as you can hit any of the nodes, you can get information about the whole cluster, which is pretty wild. Let's talk about architecture. Makbul, when you're starting a new project,
0: a side project, or maybe a client project, how do you think about the design process? Like, Where do you start when it comes to designing an application from scratch?
1: So there are two possible. One is when I want to learn something, that's totally different way I think about any problem per se. But when I am have to deliver something, I usually just do practical stuff where take out the information which are already available, or take out the codes which are already available and start going because you can't start with blank page when you're working for somebody else. But when it comes to my own learning experience, I tend to do everything from first principle from scratch, everything, just the bare minimum which we get from our generator and start from small steps, little steps, or maybe take a page in from the notebook and write it down. okay, these are the things I need small, small information, write it down. So you learning the process itself. So it would be useful later on. I tend to think things in that way. Do
2: you do any pre-coding planning, like a whiteboarding or sketching out on a piece of paper or taking notes beforehand or anything like that?
1: I think even before writing, anyone should start a piece of paper is a great technology ever invented by human. So we should take advantage of that and i think it's a very good way to really think about your thought process and jot it down every individual things you need to think about before and then thinking about the coding itself coding is the easy part the hard part is to think about what are the pieces you need what are the pieces going to fit together and then finally the coding of coding is really the easiest part in whole process.
0: I think we just got our episode quote right now. Paper is a great piece of technology invented by humans. I love that. (laughs) I'm also a huge pad and pen proponent. Eric and I have sort of landed on this agreement around, we usually start with designing sort of like data, and then the API on top of that. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about architecting information or designing an information architecture, and then designing APIs on top of that?
1: So how do I think about building when it comes to, like, maybe a RESTful API, for example? Right. Or
0: a GraphQL API. Do you use GraphQL?
1: I have play, played with a little bit, but I have more experience with RESTful API. Sadly, I need to look into it, but I just could not. So I think Elixir has a GraphQL library already absinthe is the graphql yeah 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 we don't use it
2: either we have a very recent project is using absinthe so this is my first i like done reviews on it but i haven't actually used it myself yet so hopefully it holds up to everyone's love
1: there is a book also to learn about this building apis with elixir GraphQL apis i think the library author and wrote that book.
0: So then speaking about like REST APIs, first of all, what does REST mean to you? I guess is the best way to phrase the first part of the question. What are your opinions on architecting REST APIs?
1: My opinions uh, REST is, of course, is great. Of course, number one, because it's allow you to have a single piece of uh, single interface, which allow you to build multiple. It's, it's been revolutionary, if you think from historical point of view, the way we used to do API designing. But when I want to build an API, most generally I'm thinking about actors. Of, what are those nouns? I'm thinking about in terms of like, what are the objects we have? I'm dealing with those things. What are the actions I'm dealing with, would, with those nouns, what could happen? And then along that thinking, I'm coming with names and those verbs, which needs to be done. And then finally, end product will be, on piece of paper will be my whole API things, how it's gonna look like, and finally coding it. I'm thinking first the nouns of the things and the objects itself. For example, I'm building a API for, for example, a maybe a real estate company. So what are the most important part of any real estate will be a house could be of different types of houses and going along that way, if that makes sense.
2: I guess before or after coding, what kind of documentation do you do for an API?
1: I have used two tools. One is Postman because it's also useful, Postman also have this feature to testing your RESTful API as well. So you can have like small snippet of JavaScript code, which you can use to check your API endpoints. And another one I have played with is is Swagger.
0: We're gonna change subjects here, but I'm curious, what is your opinion on microservices? feel free to just roast them belligerently.
1: So most of my application would be come into something micro monolithic kind of microservices, which is, not too much isolated.
2: The macro <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was this term by Francesco. He shared a tweet similar along that line, What with a micro right? Something not too much isolated, or not too much like a modern, something moderation. But when it comes to like you are building a, for a large company, then the microservices has shown some reliability if that is a good word because you can have a large number of teams can work together which is not possible in cases with monolithic so there is a good and bad in both situations it depends on the team and decide what kind of architecture you're going to choose so i don't have like really hosting kind of thinking about it
0: have you played around with like kubernetes at all
1: yeah i played with kubernetes it's been one year since i've been playing with kubernetes so whole ecosystem related to Kubernetes is, is fantastic because it just makes more sense. You describe what you want to do with your application and the things is going to do the things. So imperativeness is out of the box. Descriptiveness is cool. That's the beauty of Kubernetes.
0: What about like serverless architectures? Have you played around with Amazon Lambda at all?
1: Yeah, I played with Amazon Lambda and there was one hackathon I attended where I played with. Amazon Lambda, I think. How'd it go? That, I don't know, but yeah, I think it's reasonable to use these kind of services in a situation when you have is want to have a capabilities where want to, a service which you don't have to maintain, but it's process oriented kind of services like maybe a image processing service. You want to write and don't want to deal with the underlying infrastructure because it doesn't really give you that benefit to maintain the underlying whole system. So it makes sense in that cases, the serverless would be a good idea to choose. I think I have wrote a, some sort of a scraper service as a serverless for my, we were building a, some sort of a machine learning project as a team for a hackathon. So in that part, I built that thing. There is a library for Erlang, which allow you to build your serverless application, which can be run on Amazon. AWS. So I think people want to try with you know, Erlang, they can check that out as well.
2: I think my favorite serverless story is From Serverless with a dollar sign to Elixir, is the title of the article from Corey O'Daniel. And he talks about $12,000 a month serverless function. And he converted it from that to like $160 a month of Phoenix application. And it is like just as good. That's pretty much my takeaway from serverless. It's very expensive. <laughs> I would love to see it in action, though. Actually, see costs being racked
0: up in some kind of like production architecture. That'd be interesting. Are either of you aware of a product or project? Is there a website out there that you know for sure is like hitting a Lambda service?
2: We actually wrote one because it's an Amazon Alexa skill. One of our clients, spotcrime.com has an alexa skill i believe it's still active i think they force you to use a lambda to make a skill any amazon skill i believe is a lambda so if you've asked for stuff you've used lambdas
0: i wonder why they would force that upon people
2: money money money
0: (laughs) (laughs) well we are all in agreement on amazon's motivations there Let's talk a little bit about protocols. I've been kind of hoping that this would come up in our conversation at some point. Everyone's familiar with HTTP as a protocol, but do you have any familiarity or experience using non-standard protocols like FTP, FTP, SSH, Raft, or like other consensus protocols?
1: I want to talk about FTP because no one's going to talk about now at this time because it used to be used, everyone used to using FTP clients to upload their files too. And then there was a time we used to have like this hosting services where you buy for a year and then you upload your files, maybe a PHP application or maybe a WordPress. So there was a time people used to use FTP. I don't know if anyone are using FTP now. I don't think so.
2: I was until like a year ago. Those uh, hosts still exist. So people surely are developing on a remote server, develop on production. <laughs>
0: It's like what I do with Bluehost, which is why my website's
1: down right now, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, so wait, like, go on. Do you think no one's using it anymore? Why do you think that is? Like, are you glad about it? Do you think we need to bring it back?
1: I don't think we need to bring it back. But yeah, there was, that was a time when it just feel nostalgic because I bought my first uh, subscription of this, what we used to say, like, a joined server where multiple people used to use the same server for hosting their websites and all. So, that just being nostalgic and nothing else, It don't need to come back. I'm pretty sure.
2: Yeah, I think that was my first intro as well. I convinced my dad because I was still in high school to pay the $60 for a year with like a free domain and I uploaded my PHP that I wrote. It was quite the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's me doing high school as well. Like, uh, it cost me about $20. So there was some black thing going on. So there was really cheap. So GoDaddy happens and got me for years. So yeah, first time getting things online, and you type your domain name, it was such a great feeling.
0: I have a curveball that I think neither of you are going to expect because this just came out. So have either of you heard of Neil Ferguson? So Neil Ferguson is a epidemiologist, I think in England. So he's written one of the major like models that they're using. This is going to get to an architecture question or at least like an application question. It was originally written 13 years ago in C. And this is a pandemic simulation model that they are using to model control measures against COVID 19. So he wrote this 13 years ago in undocumented C code. And now they're using it to predict how the flu or the COVID-19 pandemic is gonna work its way through Britain, I presume. The reason I'm asking you this is, what's your immediate reaction to that?
1: I'm getting same feeling when I saw in Indian Twitter trending page, COBOL was trending. So same happened with United States, I think uh, COBOL was trending and the same in India, the COBOL was trending, similar kind of feeling.
0: I guess, is it responsible to use 13 year olds undocumented C code to like develop public policy? Is there anything that you wrote 13 years ago that you would trust in any
2: way at all? I think it depends on when that C code was written in Neil Ferguson's life. Was that part of his doctorate or whatever, or like something where hopefully there was a little more thought put behind it than like a me 13 years ago in high school, just learning how to program. So no, I would not trust myself from 13 years ago, but the code I write now, I would hope still works in 13 years.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. The code that you write now, 13 years from now, would you feel comfortable using it to build a voting high stakes things like pandemic predictions or, you know, voting systems like Makbhul, you know, if you were going to model this in India and then like make suggestions like how should we do high stakes things is I think the real question.
1: We have to also realize there are really smart people out there whose works they do, which influence like very long period of time. Maybe I might not be comfortable with my work. There are people out there who have done really good quality works, which are at the moment is running the world. Like for example, COBOL, it exists because there are smart people who have done some really good work.
0: There's COBOL, John McCarthy wrote LISP, I'm pretty sure by himself in the 50s and we still use it. I'm totally not opposed to the idea that people can write things and they can be valuable forever. I am somewhat opposed to the idea that you can I can go look at the C source code, right? I cannot go look at this model that this guy's using. The point was sort of about how should we think about the real world consequences of our code and how do we ensure that there won't be real world repercussions that are super duper negative in our code.
1: A lot of the works we do which don't really have that kind of high stakes, but one example comes though, so the airplane crash happened. So it was Boeing right point seven max something so there was software kind of issue which led to real world people dying so in that scenario we have to take your work really seriously maybe thinking like how a doctor thinks when operating on a patient so this kind of so kind of development really people who are doing needs to be very careful with that
2: This is why I write video games, very low pressure situations.
0: So you wouldn't write a voting system if we got hired to do it? At least not
2: in three months.
0: Are there any guarantees that we can get from using something like Dialyzer or I think Norm is the other library that Keithley is working on? Do you have an opinion on static typing, Mokbul? This is a good question.
1: I love it. Why I love it? Because I have started learning Haskell as well. So, because in Haskell, there is a static type system. So, you just describe your types. So, what are the signatures of a type? It can be a very complicated function. You don't know implementation, but you can start thinking in terms of types. So, I think, and then using its type system, you can have information. We can have something. Uh, there is a thing called holes and all. So, I started to love static type, the type system and all, especially. But if you think about static typing, from C++ or C perspective, I just don't like it. It's not going to work in that. I need more interactive static type system, which Haskell provides. If we can port that into our being community, it would make our application. If you build, like, Haskell programs are literally the proofs of your, they are proofs. When you're writing a program, it's proofs. So yeah, it's a mathematical object in a sense.
0: We've got an ongoing debate between the people who are pro-static typing and not pro-static typing. I do think that for something like a voting system or something like that, that would be probably helpful. Eric, do you want to talk about the big news that came out today other than the dashboard? It involves the dashboard.
2: Yeah, this this is just a, a very late breaking in that late in that this probably won't come out for a few weeks. So you'll already have known about this for a while, but Five minutes ago, Chris McCord posted on the Elixir forum that Phoenix 150RC0 was out. Big day in Elixir land. We have the Phoenix Live dashboard and now a brand new version of Phoenix itself. Uh, And it looks like some of the big things is that PubSub 2.0 is getting pulled out, which is pretty cool because I've done a lot with PubSub in the background. So not being part of your endpoints kind of neat. Go check that out, I guess. (laughs) Makbool, do you have a favorite RFC?
1: Uh, GRPC. Is cool. It's great. GRPC is like Google RPC. So they have like protocol buffer where you define what are the objects would be and then it will generate the client and server, all the components. So GRPC is great. I learned about GRPC in Cloud Native Con China. I played a little bit. I only know GRPC, so I will say GRPC.
0: Did I say RPC or because I meant to say RFC? <laughs>
1: You said RPC, right?
0: Yeah, I might've said that. That's a great answer though, considering that was not like what I expected. I was GRPC, what is it? And now I'm looking at it and it looks super cool. Open source universal RPC framework allows efficient connection to services across data centers, pluggable support for load balancing, tracing, health checking, and authentication. This is pretty cool looking. What I meant to ask was what's your favorite RFC, <laughs> which is a little bit
1: different. So for this question, I googled it. So cheated a bit. Of course, HTTP protocol, is my favorite for a any application developer for, for of course. So there is another one you should Google five two seven. You should read it out.
0: RFC five two seven. Eric, can I get your permission to read this out loud? Actually, Eric, you should probably read this out loud.
2: Uh, let's. We'll just do the first stanza, I guess. <laughs> okay, so this is the first part
0: of RFC five twenty seven. Thank you so much, Makpool, for bringing this to our attention. Twas brillig and the protocols did user server in the web. All mimsy was the FTP and the RJE outgrabe. And this was from 1973. Arpa-waki. I have no idea what this means, but I assume that maybe someone is going to reach out and tell me what it means, and we're going to have you on the show to explain it.
2: I'm guessing that it's probably a play on the Jabberwocky poem.
0: Makwool. I want to thank you for coming on the show. And I also want to give you the chance if you have any plugs or asks for the audience or where people can find you online, shameless self-promotion, now's your opportunity.
1: Thank you for inviting me to your show. I just want to give a shout out to Groxio and Bruce and Maggie for suggesting me to having like really excellent discussion. So guys do check out Groxio. It's an excellent way to learn new programming languages. And for finding me, you can just Google my name, entire name. You can find maybe in, you can share in my, that short description. So just add ism to Magpul, yeah, and you'll be on Twitter. I am very active on Twitter, but I talk about a lot of different things. I involve in politics. I talk about politics, I talk about history. I talk about linguistics, linguistic, I talk about programming. So broad different ideas.
0: I'm following you on Twitter, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it with you on there. The Twitter is plenty of fun for those of us who like to get into a lot of different topics. Before we close out, we've got to share another edition of Pattern Matching with Todd. Friend of the podcast, Todd Residek, is asking members of the Elixir community five questions to help us all get to know each other better. Hope you enjoy it.
3: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Pattern Matching, where I ask your favorite members of the Elixir community five questions to try to get to know them better. My guest today is known for speaking about Kubernetes and the Beam at conferences all over. He is the author of some great libraries like Bonnie, which he describes as the Elixir-based Kubernetes development framework. Welcome, Corey O'Daniel. Hi, Todd, thanks for having me. Let's get started with question number one. So where were you born? Felicity, Ohio, population
4: 900, so big town, on a cattle and tobacco farm. So that's outside of Cincinnati? Yeah, it's I think maybe like 45 minutes or so from Cincinnati. You know, a little farm. We grew tobacco. I think we had apples and pears. Actually, I texted my mom this morning. I was like, what all do we grow on this farm? And she was like, there's some things I can talk about. and There's some things I can't. That's interesting. Trailblazers. Now I live in Pasadena, California with my wife. I got a nine-year-old son who may or may not yell at some point in time. And a Instagram celebrity dog who may or may not bark at squirrels.
3: Nice. You know, shout out to Cincinnati. Cincinnati is well represented in the Elixir community. Lots of good programmers over there.
4: Yeah, I actually, in PEX LA, I met a number of people from Ohio. So I was very surprised. I didn't know that there was a budding Elixir community out there. So it's pretty cool.
3: Yeah. I don't know how it happened, but it sprang up. So I was on their last month's meetup. I guess they did it online. So I joined them there. But lots of great programmers come from the Cincinnati or Columbus areas.
4: If they're doing it online next month, I might have to join as a honorary Ohioan.
3: Yeah, there you go. And you said you have a celebrity dog. You want to promote your dog's Instagram? Oh,
4: yeah. It's Ziggy, Z-I-G-G-Y dot O-Doodle. Oh, we just post cute pictures of her and she's got several thousands of followers now and I think she's almost got 30,000 and... It's like pet food and pet snack places, like mail us stuff all the time. And the weirdest thing I ever got was this one company was like, we do organic dog treats. And I'm like, that's fantastic. We love organic stuff. Send them. And then a few weeks later, a big wooden crate showed up at my house. And I was like, what is this? I pried it open with a hammer. Like it was a legit like wooden crate. Pry it open. There's a styrofoam box inside of it. I'm like, okay, this is a bomb. So I take the lid off. Smoke comes out. It's dry ice. And... (laughs) there is a cow femur just cut into sections laying in this box. And when they said organic dog treats, they were like, I guess really organic and pretty fresh. So that was disgusting. She had one and then we gave them to our neighbor who had a Chihuahua. So interesting times.
3: Wow, all right. The life of a celebrity dog. Who would have thought, what a time we live in. It can't be a difficult life, that's for sure. Definitely not. You're having cow femurs delivered right to your door. All right question number 2 have you had any careers before programming
4: yeah i mean they're all computer oriented or network oriented how i got into technology in general i worked at a hospital in data entry cuz i think in 1999 and i'd been programming for a while just as a hobby wasn't really interested in it as a job i was doing data entry and what was going on in the hospital is I worked in the billing department, somebody would print up all these spreadsheets, bring the printed spreadsheets down to me, and then I would enter them in this terminal program. And I was like, this is stupid. So I asked the lady that brought them down every day, I'm like, can you just bring them to me on a disc? And she was like, yeah, sure. I was like, I don't want to, you know, waste all that paper. And so I wrote a program to pretty much parse the spreadsheets and then just enter them in the program for me. And I was just sitting around one day reading, I think it was the third edition Dungeons and Dragons monstrous manual. My boss walked by. And she's like, what are you doing? And it's just like, I'm very obviously reading a Dungeons and Dragons book. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm reading the monstrous manual. She's like, why aren't you working? I was like, I wrote a program to do my job. And she just kind of looked at me weird and then left. And then she came back an hour later. She's like, if we gave you a thousand dollar bonus and put you on the networking team, would you give us the rights to your software? And I was like, yes. And so I got a thousand bucks, which is great at the age of 18 for nothing. I joined the help desk and networking team, so I kind of got into networking. Still wasn't really interested in software at that point in time. I eventually went on to be a HIPAA security analyst. So my master's degree is in healthcare information systems, kind of stayed in healthcare. And then after that, I went to become a adjunct professor and then decided to move to California to join a startup.
3: HIPAA security analyst sounds really exciting.
4: Yeah, it wasn't so much exciting. It was interesting. I mean, it was a lot of policies and procedures, writing scripts to like analyze nodes on our network, or endpoints on our network, I guess, is what they referred to them as you're trying to protect people's information, which is a good deed, but it just wasn't super exciting. And we had a lot of HIPAA violations up until that point. I don't know, it was kind of sad. Like we did a lot of stuff where I was trying to see if employees were doing stuff wrong. And I felt like my job was just being a boring cop. just trying to bust people all day for putting their passwords under their mouse pad.
3: So if you weren't a programmer, what do you think you'd be?
4: I'd either be an architect, so if you ever see me in real life, my right arm is all architecture tattoos, Skyline of San Francisco, New York, a map of the outline of Manhattan. I was originally a physics major, switched to architecture, and then switched to information systems. Pretty much just trying to find like where I could end up to make the most money quickest. <laughs> My right arm is like an homage to a career that I did not take. So I'd say architecture. I'm also really interested in archeology. span I've done some volunteer digs, and I've been to a lot of the UNESCO world sites. It's a hobby of mine, but realistically I'll end up probably owning a bodega, selling overpriced wine and grilled cheese sandwiches. And what's the name of your bodega? Odega with an apostrophe.
3: Odega, the Irish bodega. So do you have a favorite architect?
4: Yeah, me and my wife, we designed a very beautiful house. We bought a dump two years ago and put a lot of thought into designing an awesome space.
3: So your own favorite architect?
4: We are now. Is that fooling myself? A little bit. That's fine.
3: Almost by definition. Well, moving on then. What is the genre of the last song or the last album you listened to?
4: I don't know what the genre would be. The last album I listened to was Weezer Blue album. I love that album. To this day, it's... One of the handful of albums that I can listen to all the way through, not skip a song. I love that album. So yeah, what is that? Surf rock or like pop punk, I guess. But my musical tastes are a bit all over the place. My playlists are people hate them because it's just like, it'll be like hip hop, a country song, a punk song. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, it feels good. It's great. But yeah, I'm a bit all over the place.
3: I don't want to mess up this quote too much. Weezer put out a, a tribute album, I don't know, a couple of years ago, right? So it was all cover songs. And a friend of mine described Weezer. She said, "If you take their albums in reverse chronological order, they're a tribute band that got slightly better over time. The implication is their first few albums were really good, and then they get worse up until that tribute album."
4: Oh, it was one that starts out with like a Toto cover, right?
3: Yeah, Africa. I think.
4: Oh gosh, that album! I did listen to that one a few times when it first came out. It's pretty good. What else was on there? Oh. Sweet Dreams is on there too. Yeah, that was a good one. I'm, a, you know what? I'm popping that bad
3: boy on when I'm off this call. Cool. All right. Question number four. What movie will you watch anytime you come across it on TV? Probably one or two. I'd say Primer,
4: just because no matter how many times I watch it, I still have no idea what happens, but I think it's a great movie. And Jim Henson, David Bowie's Labyrinth. That's probably my favorite movie of all time. I've dressed. As the Goblin King for Halloween, a couple of times. And I think I've got most of the movie memorized. There was a point in time when I was a kid that it was on pay per view. And I figured out pay per view and I watched it every day after school. And my parents had, I think, almost it was a $500 pay per view bill
3: <laughs> from me just watching Labyrinth over and over. Wow. Yeah. I recently listened to a Stuff You Should Know podcast about Jim Henson. I don't know if you've heard that or not. It's got a really. Interesting history as a hippie who also liked puppets.
4: I hope there's nothing bad in it.
3: No, no, no. It gives him a lot of credit. All right. Final question. What project are you most excited about working on next? So something you're either maybe just starting working on now or continuing to work on or something that you really want to get involved with in the near future?
4: I'm a principal software architect at The Real Real, but I own a Kubernetes consultancy with uh, a few other people that I've done work with over the past few years. We've decided to pivot that towards building some applications. So we actually have been brainstorming a project that we're going to be starting. Well, we've kind of already started on an MVP of it, but it's called CAPE, and it is superpowers for infrastructure engineers. So if you've ever used Terraform or Customize or Helm, or Ksonit or Jsonit, what we're doing is developing a platform that feels a lot like the UI consoles you'd see in GCP or AWS, except that it is packaged best practices of infrastructure, applications, and services that you might need to deploy, but with the ability to eject from that UI at any point in time and generate all of your IAC. So if you're one of those people that you want to have all of your stuff in code, but maybe you want to use a UI to do it. You can build systems using a user interface. And then if you're ever like, man, I'm backed into a corner. I really wish we would have done this as IAC. You can eject it and it'll spit out all the Terraform and Helm and all that stuff that it used to deploy your applications, infrastructure, and services.
3: Very cool. Where can listeners go to check out Cape? You can
4: SSH into my home laptop (laughs) and it's in a folder on my desktop right now. We're literally... I think maybe two or three weeks into discussing how we're going to build most of this. And then we've started building a few of the systems that we've deployed previously, starting to build those out as some of the bundles that are there. I can talk a bit about what it's built on top of, there's a spec out there called CNAB, which is cloud native application bundles. I believe it came out of Deus Labs, which is a part of Microsoft now. So it's all built on top of the CNAB spec. We've had to add a few extensions to it to be able to do the kind of things we want to do. It's a pretty cool spec. There's two implementations open source out there now. One's called Porter and another one's called Duffle. So if you're deploying stuff on the cloud and you're deploying applications and infrastructure and you want a better tool, I'd take a gander at CNAP and Porter. It's pretty cool technology.
3: All right. Well, sounds great. Thanks for joining me today, Corey. And for our listeners, if they want to SSH into your laptop, are you going to put out your IP and your private key out on Twitter later today?
4: You got to catch me at a Starbucks though. I don't know what my IP address is.
3: Ah, okay. All right. Well, anyway, thank you for joining me today, Corey O'Daniel. Yeah, thanks so
0: much. That is it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again, Makbul and Eric, my co host, for joining us. I'm Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project that we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Elixir Wizards on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Justice Epen, like just use a pen and Eric at Eric Ostrich. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more system and application architecture.